Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news, politics and culture from a socialist perspective. This is the special Rupture Radio 100 uh, special recording to celebrate our 100th episode. Uh, two years in, started as Left Inside, uh, um, but about two years ago I think we rebranded uh, uh, as Rupture Radio. Um, so to celebrate that, we're having like a, a live recording here online uh, um, and we have some space at the end for for people who are here in person to, to ask any questions and to participate. But the, the key topic for tonight is the case for nationalising the energy sector, which is tomorrow. We're recording now on six o'clock on Friday, the 11th of November. Um, and tomorrow uh, there was a nationwide series of protests uh, taking place uh, uh, on the cost of living. Um, but within that, we wanted to dig into the solutions to the cost of living crisis and in particular uh, um, why uh, we as eco-socialists argue for the energy sector to be brought into public ownership. So I'm Kian. I'll be the, the host for today, and I'm joined by Diana O'Dwyer. Do you want to say hi, Diana? Hi, everybody. Uh, rupture re- regular and uh, another rupture regular of Paul Murphy here with us again. Hello. Hi. Okay, so how are you all doing? Are you all, is, this, is this your dream Friday night? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Take that as a no. Um, yeah. What else would we do to celebrate 100 episodes than have another episode online? 100 more. Uh, um, and ha- what do you think, first of all, like, before we jump into the, the meat of it, the protests tomorrow about the cost of living, I suspect, I think the Limerick one will be a couple of hundred. I, I, I get a sense that they, they, they're not going to be massive. I, I get a sense that the, the, the mood has maybe dipped a little bit on this. Uh, um. But I don't know how 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 do you think if they want, there's one in Tallis and there do you, what what do you expect there to be? There is. I I think if we had hundred people, we'd be happy uh, tomorrow. I think, like you say, the, the kind of active mood of protest right now isn't the same as it was for the protests pre-budget. There was a very definite purpose then. The budgets next week, mobilize, put pressure. Um, but I I wouldn't draw too kind of developed conclusions from that because I think that's going to shift again I don't think it's that people think oh the government has done enough I think the sentiment you get from people is the government hasn't done enough um but I think it's going to bite whenever the winter is really hitting like we've had unseasonably warms October so far November you know a lot of people won't have put their heat on much yet won't really have noticed and the other thing is you're going to see another round of price increases from all these highly profitable companies yeah, that it is that is true. Like, uh, there was a particular cold snap in September, and I remember being panicked because I was already turning on the heating then. And I was like, "Oh my god, if we're doing this all the time!" But I haven't really had the heating on since. So, um, that is maybe um the greatest saving grace for the government has been the 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 the, the weather. But maybe diving into the to the meat of the issue, um, obviously the the, the backdrop to the entire. Uh, a case for public ownership that we're making now is is focused on the cost of living crisis. So there is, um, Diana, I know you've done a lot of research on the level of fuel poverty and like how the, what exactly the cost of living crisis involves, what's going on. What what could you give us some figure, facts and figures as to what's, what is the situation? Yeah, it's really shocking when I started looking into it, like just the extent of the massive increase in energy poverty for people. Um, like there was a research report by the ASRI on this in June and like the proportion of, of households in energy poverty had like more than doubled from like 13% in 2015, 2016 to 29% um, this year. So, I mean, it just shows like, you know, 
the amount of people that are struggling to pay the electricity bills and like that was over the summer before the latest round of increases but I mean it's no surprise really like the fact that the bills are just increasing by such enormous amounts like that's just going to have an impact on everybody apart from like people who are on very high incomes like um as of July like the cost of electricity gas and other fuels had already gone up by 55 percent and electricity um by 40 percent gas by 56 percent um, so I mean that's just humongous um, increases for anybody and then if you add like petrol and diesel onto that as well it's costing people like an extra 38 euro um, a week um, and that was like earlier in the year um, and that's just massive when you know your big bills are, are going up as well if you're a grocery shop like I would definitely notice it like that it's a significant increase like in your grocery shopping as well um, and it's just sickening to think that like the main cause of all this really is like profiteering by the fossil fuel companies. And it's interesting that that's becoming kind of increasingly acknowledged. Like I saw a big headline in the Financial Times there a couple of weeks ago saying an op-ed saying profiteering is the root of this, you know. So and we were saying that obviously like we would kind of always say that. But in this case, it really is like demonstrably very true. You the, know? the Financial Times were saying that. Yeah, that, yeah. I saw that as well. Yeah. They had a thing which was bit. Pretty blunt, actually, about it being uh, driven by profiteering. Like, it, there's a US academic, Adam Tooze, did a study. This is like mm, three or four months ago, where he kind of analyzed what's driving inflation. And he concluded something like 8% of inflation was caused by increased unit labor costs. So almost nothing driven by wages, which is normally what they try to blame. And um, 30 something percent was caused by increased input costs, which would incorporate in the nature, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, the hangover from COVID. But over 50% of it was from increased profit taking by the big corporations. And obviously that, that tallies with the like enormous increases in profits, in particular for the big fossil fuel companies, but also for the food companies. They're they're all increasing their their profits. And what what was the what did the Financial Times say? Okay, so they say, oh, the problem here is profiteering, but like what did they have in their toolkit to deal with profiteering? Or were they just saying the problem is profiteering and that's a good thing because Profit is great. Like, what did they actually, what was their conclusion? Does anybody know? Nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> Paul is furiously Googling. <laughs> I can't remember what they said. And um, okay. they did. Um, so one, okay. Well, they had a piece on the 1st of November. This must have been the one we've seen recently where it said, Fed should make clear that rising profit margins are spurring inflation. That was the the point. Um so and the same about like it, the point was saying oh wages wage growth is catastrophically uh, negative is far removed from the 1970s style wage price spiral etc um and i'm scrolling down here uh this is uh, just my way of getting around the yeah. financial times paywall uh, and the, the one thing that like always really annoys me even though they say product or like input costs but it's like nothing it's so, okay the war ukraine that happened that's true. That is an, that is real. Um, but like, just because there's less, just because the gas isn't coming from Russia, doesn't mean that the gas or the oil that is coming from Saudi Arabia or any other country automatically increases in price. Do you know what I mean? It's like, just they they sort of talk about, oh well, there's a shortage of there's a shortage, so therefore of course prices go up. But but no, like. Prices only go up when there's a shortage because companies can then get away with charging more. It's not like they, it actually costs them more to extract that oil or gas. Um, but I feel like that sort of like logical point is is lost as because pe people have just swallowed hook, line, and sinker the um, 
the logic of the market, which is, you know. So, and what else, what are the other, like, points about profiteering? What else is going on in terms of this? Who, who exactly is profiting out of this? Well, I think the biggest culprits are, like, the, the major oil and gas companies, like, the really giant um, oil companies like BP, like Shell, you know, um, posting profits BP did of nearly 7 billion euros pounds in the second quarter of the year shell recorded quarterly profits of 10 billion between april and june of the year um so they're just absolutely massive i was reading a report there recently um to do with um the cop 27 negotiations and they were saying that um just the profits of the major um oil and gas companies um in the last year would be enough to more than pay for all the loss and damage caused by climate change to date to like the entire developing world so like Jesus just Christ. and still have kind of money left over so just the extent of it is just really stark and really shocking and like i wonder if there is an element that like they're just like really trying to maximize profits as much as possible because they know that you know um, probably there's going to be less fossil fuel usage in the future and they're just really trying to make the most out of it like at the moment um, maybe that's an optimistic interpretation that there will be less oil and gas use in the future though because like they're kind of using the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis to push more return to fossil fuels and LNGs and everything like that as well but I wonder if that is part of it um, but like it's right across the board um, it's not just the major international oil and gas companies but they're the most obscene kind of profits but like here in Ireland as well like people would be aware like the local electricity companies and the local arms of international electricity companies are making you know massive profits as well they're like double and triple what they would normally you know mm-hmm. in particular they're the ones with like generation arms and that's where they're able to make the the money i mean the actual because sometimes we, we'll talk about these things you'll say well so suppliers leaving the market but they're the ones who are purely suppliers who don't really have anything we're just buying electricity off generators and then selling it to uh, consumers but those who have generation capacity in particular those who have like wind power generation capacity are making huge money because the whole thing operates on this like marginal system of pricing whereby whatever the like most expensive electricity is that sets the price for everybody and then they're able to make huge amounts so you see esb which is state owned but is run on a for-profit model their profits uh increased to in the first half of the year to almost 400 million euros compared to just under 130 million euros in the first half of 2021. Board Gosh Energy recorded a 74% rise in its profits in the first half of the year. And SSE, which is the parent company of SSE Airtricity, they increased their profits at 15% in the first quarter of the year, kind of year on year. So they're the ones who are also at a domestic level making big profits. Like the- that ESB stat is phenomenal. Like that, it's like three hundred and ninety million in six months. Um, that's over two million euros profit a day. And like, there's not that many households in Ireland. You know, there's two million households in Ireland. They're making one euro profit per household per day. Do you know what I mean? It's it's incredible the the profits that ESB are making. Um, and like it is as you were saying, it's like triple what they made um last year. Uh, but the the government seems to be just letting them away with it. Uh, um, there's, there's, there seems to be... like e- it's, it's deeper than that, right? Because even if ESB wanted to use their profits from the generation side to reduce prices for people, as things are currently legally set up, they're not allowed to do so. They have to be run on a separate 
basis and they have to run on they're running on a for-profit mandate they can't so-called cross subsidize from the generation section to the supply section so that's that's inherent to the way the whole thing which is the broader conversation we're going to go on to that they've created a for-profit market in electricity despite the fact that it doesn't make sense from the point of view of our climate or from the point of view of, of people ordinary people consuming electricity or from the point of view of workers in the sector well let's just skip ahead a couple of seconds because what did they do so esb before you know in and when i was walking through five miles of snow to get to school in my bare feet or whatever. But ESB before was the one company, it produced electricity and it delivered electricity to to the consumer. But that is no no more how it's structured. Uh, um, What what changes did they make to how the ESB um, is? It's now like they call it the ESB group or something. Yeah, I mean, basically what they did was um, on foot of EU directives, which were brought in first in the 90s, like to liberalize the whole energy market across the EU. And so every like country in the EU had to bring in laws that would liberalize their own energy markets. Um, So basically what this meant um, in Ireland was breaking up the EU and or the ESB into like different component parts so like I think it's the grid is still publicly owned um but then they like hived off you know the ESB company like you pay your bill to like the retail arm of ESB um and they create artificially a market with like loads of other companies compete in it and then they kind of said after that that like oh for this market to kind of work properly we'd have to get rid of the non-profit mandate of the ESB because when it was set up originally in the 1920s um it actually had written into the law that like um it could only kind of cover its costs and Mm -hmm. couldn't charge anything so it was like a a, i suppose a a not a not-for-profit like um cost price electricity which like would be brilliant you know if that Mm -hmm. was um still in force because like disadvantaging Mm. the profiteering companies is it yeah basically the electricity price was too low like to attract in all these supposedly competitive electricity companies to supply electricity so they had to artificially increase the price so like Ireland went from having like some of the cheapest electricity um in Europe to having like some of the most expensive electricity in Europe. So um, I think between 94 and 2014, um, electricity prices increased by 267% in Ireland. <laughs> um, and like they really, you know, outclassed the rest of the EU in how much they ripped off consumers here. There was an increase of 40% in the rest of the EU, but 267% here. So yeah i mean you could all you need to do is look at the figures to see what the impact of that was you know for for consumers and you know ordinary people and that, so in order to try to attract in other companies to compete they had to fatten up the the, the profit margins in, in the sector in order to bring them in and so they actually drove up prices yeah i mean this is a classic debunking in practice of the myth of neoliberal capitalist ideology you know the idea is the market's most efficient these like, you know, big state monopolies, very inefficient way of organizing things will bring in the market, bring in private operators, profit will make it all work. Um, but in actual fact, what's demonstrated, not just in Ireland, but across the EU, demonstrated in Australia, where, for example, you can compare different states in Australia, which undertook this process of privatization at different times. So you can compare 
You know what I mean? You could measure some states having half privatized, fully privatized, not privatized. And the evidence is clear internationally that the impact of privatization is to drive up uh, prices, is obviously to reduce conditions for workers uh, in the sector, um, and is to delay and slow investment in renewable energy. That's what happens. But then you have to realize, like, that's they don't mind that. Like these are areas where you had historically very strong positions of workers' power, well unionized sector, you know, pivotal strategic position. And they wanted to undermine those positions of workers' uh, power and they wanted to create opportunities for profit for major multinational corporations. And so, you know, the, the, the whole like bringing prices down, making things efficient, that's just a smokescreen for their actual class interest. But when you look at the experience of this over the past number of decades, it is there in black and white that this has not worked in the interests of you know the vast majority of people. And look, we sort of skipped ahead, a little bit ahead, but then uh, just to bring it back then, um, so there's profiteering taking place. A massive profits being made by the energy companies now. The result is uh, uh, we're feeling the pinch and seeing our bills going up. People uh, over the summer, people were paying bills that they were higher than what they usually pay at winter. Um, and now we're facing into a, a winter that obviously it's been unseasonably warm for the last few weeks, but that, that won't last. We could be facing a very cold winter and dramatic bills. But the immediate call that has resonated and has been raised most broadly, I know people for profit were the first to raise it, but it's now Sinn Féin have backed it, others have backed it, is the call for price controls. Um, and that's still something PVP are pushing. Um, but, but talk to me a little bit about, like, why is price controls not enough? Uh, uh, well, first of all, what is the case for price controls, but also what's the, the limits to it? I'll make the case for it. <laughs> you, do, you do four and, and no, Diana do the problems are. <laughs> I mean, the case for is very simple, that we don't accept that the market should set the price, that we think that the public should be able to set the price. The state should be able to say, okay, we're going to set electricity at levels that are affordable to ordinary people, that that's vital. These people are making massive uh, profits. We're going to cut into. We're going to eat into those profits by setting prices which don't allow them to create those those profits. And just you know, it is important that we're still championing the demand for price controls, and um, while understanding the points that Diana's meant meant to make that like it doesn't work by itself if you leave it in the private hands of the of the market. And just before we move on to the the limits, but how would price controls work? Uh, um... Because obviously the the logic everybody says well prices are just set by the market that's that's how it works and um but like but the the government currently has the power and this is something we've been saying for a long time for over a year now actually since the first motion we put it at all about this the government under consumer protection legislation could literally at two strokes of a pen one stroke to say there's an emergency in terms of the supply of electricity. And two, then to say a maximum price you can charge for electricity per unit is 20 cent. The government already has the power to do it, but absolutely refuses to go there because they obviously don't want to interfere with the market being the ones who, who set the price. So you can set maximum prices within Irish legislation. The government has the power to do it. OK, so that's an immediate step that should be taken. But so the case, the, the limits of it then, Diana, what's the why? Why doesn't that just solve our problems? I think the the major practical issue, I think, is that like Ireland is like incredibly dependent on imported fossil fuels. So you could set a maximum price here, 
Um, but it would just mean that the private companies wouldn't be able to afford to buy any of the fossil fuels to power stuff, you know, and it would be the same like with the ESB as, as well, like, you know, for, um, for whoever is buying in fuels, like I think um, like it's 80, 70 percent of our electricity needs come from imported fossil fuels. So like, say if it was 100 percent renewable and it was all you know, SSE, Electricity, which is one of the main renewable companies who are completely ripping everyone off. If it was just them, you could say, right, set a maximum price and that would work. Um, but you just can't do that because the rip off is coming from the international oil and gas companies as well. And unfortunately, we can't impose price controls on them, you know, as Ireland. Um, so like, I think that it's just kind of a practical reason why it wouldn't work. And like we had kind of raised it um, in you know, particularly in terms of electricity. Um, but it's also like if you look at like the fuel that people put into their cars and stuff like that's also mostly imported. Um, so basically, like unless you have publicly owned energy, um, you're going to end up subsidizing private energy companies. And that's why, like, you know, Liz Trust was happy to bring in price caps um, in the UK because they've no problem with giving massive handouts to private energy companies, whereas like obviously on the left we do so if we're given handouts to energy companies we want them to be publicly owned democratically run and managed energy companies basically um and rather this, than giving it to private companies this is one of the things that uh Fine Gael had been attacking Sinn Féin on like saying that like oh it's a blank check for the energy companies that there was some estimate that it could be two billion euro or something like that it was some big big money in subsidies uh, to the energy companies, possibly that like was the the devil in the detail of what Sinn Fein were saying at one stage. Yeah, I mean, Fine Gael had a point. Uh, I mean, uh, another important point is that Fine Gael is currently writing a semi blank check to the energy companies. Like their policy is okay, we give people electricity credits. We're in favor of the electricity credits. They're going to give people six hundred euros. But if you don't match that with price controls. Well, then the electricity companies say, oh, great, thanks a lot. We're going to increase everyone's bills by 600 euro over a year. And then like the government will come under more pressure and then they may go further. So they've written like a partially blank check themselves. Um, but the way the bit in which they have a point is like, like Diana says, if you want to have price controls, but leave your energy market running on a for-profit basis, well, then you effectively as a state need to make up the difference between what the company says is the price that they need versus what you say, what, what they say will be the market price effectively. And what you say is the price that people are compelled to, uh, to do. And then that the difference is the state has to pay for it. And that would be, it will be expensive. I mean, just to be honest, look, of course, like on the basis of a public democratically owned electricity company, you're still in an international market where you need to import these fuels. So there still is a significant cost in terms of importing fossil fuels, but you get the benefit of ensuring that none of it is ending up in the pockets of these big profiteering uh, companies. And secondly, and this is crucial, you get the benefit of, okay, you have state-directed investment in renewable energy um, and state-directed programs to reduce energy usage where, where possible, electricity usage. So therefore, you can enable a quicker transition away from reliance on any fossil fuels in reality, but in particular, imported fossil fuels, um, so that you get out of that situation. Yeah, like I don't mind public money being spent to ensure that people stay warm or to ensure that we're, you know, 
building uh, wind turbines and solar panels and renewable energy. That's fine. If, if public money is going to be spent to, to keep people warm and uh, uh, and switch to renewable energy, that's grand. What I think I do have a problem with is like massive amounts of public money being spent just to line the pockets and to subsidize the profits of of energy companies of private for profit energy companies. So um and that that sort of idea was summed up or there's that that phrase of you can't control what you don't own uh, um that like if we actually want to stop the profiteering from the energy companies the only way to do it is to have uh, um public ownership and it seems to me like obviously Finnegale's approach is like just to throw money at the companies subsidize subsidize through the, through the back door via these 200 euro grants but Sinn Féin are also by refusing to tackle the the root cause of the issue the private ownership of the sector they're also ending up just patching up the the system uh, whereas what we really need is like the energy system we need system change uh, um, in the energy system uh, 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 to move to a, a not-for-profit uh, um, energy system um yeah okay so what what does that mean uh, um how do you go from here to a not-for-profit energy system. How could it be done, or what? What do we? Ha- what would we have to do? Uh, you're in, you know, uh, Prime Minister Paul Murphy tomorrow. What? Uh, what could we do? Be Prime Minister or Taoiseach. I don't know why you said Prime Minister. Sorry, I just, I just like we just, we just, we just, we just, we just take took, took power and and, and, and adopted uh, British names. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, your Taoiseach tomorrow. What, what, what? How does this actually happen? How could this actually be done? Um, well, one other thing I wanted to say is, look, this is at the centre of. It isn't just about the cost of living crisis. This is also about the uh, ecological crises we're seeing, and um, which are, you know, really at catastrophic catastrophe stage um, and the energy supply challenge which is all and crisis which is also present um and like uh, the answer to all of these or like a very central part is to say we have public ownership of energy we control it we change its mandate we run it in the interests of of ordinary people and um, so I- effectively what that looks like i mean we might want to go through this in in parts because there's different aspects to it right so basically there's kind of three aspects of the electricity, like quote unquote market that has been artificially created. One is the suppliers. Two is the actual network, which is currently in public ownership. And then the third is the generation of electricity, um, a portion of which, a minority of which is done on renewable and a majority of which is done on fossil fuels, either um, imported or uh, otherwise. Um so if effectively what we're proposing, and this is like we're kind of working on, it's like agreed in principle, we're just working on the details in terms of um, people for profits policy on people's power, the case for nationalizing the, the energy system, is that you would reintegrate the ESB group. And um, so all of ESB will be reintegrated into one and you would change its mandate to being a not-for-profit mandate to deliver affordable electricity to ordinary uh, people and deliver a rapid a rapid transition to 100% uh, renewable. Um, you would turn the Commission for Regulation of Utilities into a people's power agency, which would have representative of workers in the industry, of householders and climate scientists. Um, you would have a 
a plan to reduce energy usage across the economy, which maybe we'll, we'll come back to, you would recognize renewable power as a natural resource, which can only be developed publicly. Um, and then you would nationalize the major private electricity generators. So we're not talking about people who have a few solar powers panels on their roofs, um, but we're talking about the private electricity generators. They need to be nationalized. Effectively, we're saying that like, the private electricity suppliers, the retailers, and um, they don't actually have any assets worth nationalizing. So instead, you use Electric Ireland, which is state-owned, you transform it, turn it into a democratically run company and so on, and you set low prices, which effectively will drive those out of the market. But you give a guarantee to all those workers in the private companies, we'll, get, we'll employ people, give you know, quality jobs and so on. But you do need to nationalize the private electricity generators, which is the majority, significant majority of electricity generation uh, in the in the state. That was what I was going to ask. Like the significant majority of the electricity actually being generated is private for profit. Yeah. Okay. Is the you might want to say that on microphone, your nodding is 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 greatly appreciated, but it does not translate well to our medium, which is podcasting, Paul. <laughs> I was leaving that one to die, but yes, um, I'll, I'll get the, I'll root the figure out for you here within a second. It's okay, but okay. So the majority that that's 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 new to me. Um, okay, so um, talk a little bit more about like, so okay, we'd have a public if you had a publicly controlled energy sector, not for profit. Um, that would also be crucial, as Paul was saying, in terms of from a climate point of view, in addressing both the cost of living crisis, tackling the profiteering, um, but also long term in terms of addressing some of the the, the climate crisis that we're facing. Uh, um, that's an important step there. So, what's the what's the climate uh, uh, angle? What's the eco socialist case for for nationalising the energy sector, Dana? Well, like basically, if we're going to make a massive reduction in carbon emissions to be have zero emissions as soon as possible, which we need to do to avoid going up to two degrees or more warming. Um, then basically, like you need to electrify everything and you need all of the electricity to come from renewables. And there just isn't a hope in hell, basically, of that happening under the private market system. Like it's just been incredibly slow um, to have any significant amount of renewable energy um, in the energy system. There's more in the electricity system because Ireland's really windy and like it's easy enough to build windmills, but like to really get to like 100% renewable um, electricity, you'd need to be building loads of offshore wind. And they've just been talking about for decades in Ireland now, but there's still only seven offshore wind turbines. Like um, it's funny, um, I was in Wales there the other week and there was a bank of offshore wind turbines. And I was like, God, that's more than there are in all of Ireland. <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure they're privately owned too. So it's bad. But it, Ireland has been particularly bad in terms of there being any kind of investment and in offshore wind, which is what they really need to really progress it further. Um, and like, if you think back in Irish history, like the way that they electrified the whole country was through having um, a, a state-owned company, the ESP, which went around and connected up electricity like to every house in the country. And it's just unimaginable, I think, that private companies could do that. Like all they do is kind of ask the strip, compete, you know, just try and make cheap profits out of things like um, prepay electricity. You know, they're making millions out of that and that's doing nothing apart from just really profiteering off um, 
the poorest people in the country are on prepay electricity like there's no long-term investment in the system so i think like that's a huge argument for why you need um, public ownership is to have this transition to renewables and to electrify stuff um, and just you know there's no private for profit interest in electrifying everything you know because there's going to be a huge amount of investment needed to do that as well as changing the electricity generation over to renewables you know like but this was something Ireland in the past um, used to be actually a world leader ahead of the game in in, in with the ESP and stuff in terms of uh, Onish, not Onish, geez, in terms of um, I've Onish on the brain, not not a world leader, not a good thing uh, in terms of Arna Krusha, uh, um, uh, For a while, Ireland had a huge amount of its electricity was actually coming from renewable Obviously, there's there's difficulties, there's environmental concerns and problems with dams uh, uh, and hydropower. But but it was a, a, a huge chunk of our electricity was coming from that. And I didn't know this until recently, but but when they started electrifying rural Ireland and they started electrifying things in Ireland, um, there was a debate as to whether they would uh, charge at all for it because there was such an amount of electricity coming from Ardna Crusha uh, that they were like well the amount of investment that's required to actually put in meters at the charge people uh, um, was, was it didn't make sense for a while so there was actually for a while we could have had free free electricity uh, uh, to the home because the, 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 the amount of electricity that was coming from renewable sources obviously in the past hundred years the usage has gone through the roof as well but um uh, but the, the thing, the, the thing to say about that time uh, is like, you know, you, and you, this project of electrification happening across the country it was a big deal. It was all state state driven. But at the time, the kind of in the doll, you have debates happening at the time, and they the right wingers are warning. I mean, the Fine Gaelers and uh, the foreigners of Fine Gael are warning that this is like the first fruits of Bolshevism in in Ireland. You need to watch out for this. Like, and but like they had no alternative. Like, private capital wasn't going to step in. You didn't have substantial private capital in Ireland, so then they had to go down the state route, and like it, they rapidly electrified. Another thing as well, I think like that the private companies just are never going to do is like you actually need to reduce electricity usage. And there's absolutely zero interest of private electricity companies in you reducing electricity usage like they want you to increase it. So they make more profits. Um, and that's another kind of thing that you could only tackle through having like, you know, basically like a plan that people, you know, um, democratically agree, like how do you reduce electricity usage across the whole country um and that like brings in much wider things um than just you know electrifying things and having renewable energy it's about like shifting away from you know private car usage towards public transport you know it like it's a whole system change across society um because the way that like the private ownership and for profit motives in relation to electricity are driving us at the moment is like a massive increase in electricity usage with all the data centers you know who've They've been responsible, I think, for 70 percent of the increase in electricity usage um, over the last um, 10 years or so. So, I mean, that's what you're getting when you just have like a for profit um, electricity market. But and also uh, investment in which we've talked about before on the podcast, but in retrofitting homes uh, so that people can both save their on their heating bills, but also save on their emissions uh, um, and like obvious things like that, which could be a massive job creator, could be a green jobs program, retrofitting homes. Uh, um, but 
it's just simply like not happening at the scale that it, it needs to happen at. Um, so, so many people do think, see this thing that Diana mentioned earlier, I think but most people don't think about, about the need to electrify everything, is that like electricity can be renewably generated. It's simply a question of scale of solar, wind, etc. But like, you don't think about it, but there's a lot of energy use that happens in the economy. The majority currently of energy use that happens in the economy is not the use of electricity. So that's the running of private cars, obviously, that's our, and trucks and so on. That's all like internal combustion engines, directly diesel or petrol or whatever. But also a huge amount of industrial energy use happens separate to the electric grid. Again, running on gas generators and things like that. Um, so like when you think about the scale of the challenge to get to 100% renewable uh, you don't just have to think about turning all of our current electric electricity use into renewable you have to have all the parts of the energy using sectors of the economy either converted directly to renewable in some small amount of cases you could literally have you know I mean? you don't need to connect it to the grid but in the vast majority of cases you need to connect them to the grid like electric cars for example or electric public transport has to be collected to the grid and then we need to generate electricity for that so you see the scale of the challenge in terms of getting to 100% renewable, which is why it has to be linked to the idea of where possible, like for data centers and so on, like unnecessary social use of these things, we have to cut down on it, you know, where possible private car usage, replace it with public transport, give people a real alternative, et cetera, et cetera. What about Fine Gael's plan for 1 million electric cars? Is that not just going to... Well, I had an engagement with our problems. the head of an Enterprise Ireland during the week where I was pushing them about... They've, uh, there's loads of these grant schemes for... We're throwing money at the data centres, right? In this... So in the last budget, there were schemes for... They can get €30,000 each, the data centres, a month to help them with their electricity bills. But then on top of that, Irish-owned data centres, of which there is a few, Electric Ireland has a separate scheme where they can get a bunch of money for their bills as well. So I was challenging on this because in his opening statement, he was like, we're committed to decarbonisation, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, how does this how does this tally? Like you say you're committed, but you're given. And they had loads of excuses. But at the end, he was like, well, you're, you're talking about reducing electricity use. That's a different thing than decarbonisation. I was like, no. Like, do you not agree that the more electricity you use, the harder it is to decarbonize? And he was like, it's a very complicated, very complex question. Well, I'm happy to talk to you at some other time. And it's just like, that's not true. Like, it's just a mathematical fact. The more electricity you're using, the harder it is to get to a point, or more energy you're using to get to a point of 100% renewable. Yeah, like like the data, well, anyway, we're getting on to the data centers discussion, but like the more data centers you're building, even if they, they talk about, oh, well, we're fueling this data center by this wind turbine and you're like yeah we should build a wind turbine but we shouldn't be using it to power the data center we should be build a wind turbine and use it to power people's homes you know what i mean uh, um and the actually socially useful things uh, um yeah yeah i mean it just means you're running to stand still like mm -hmm. a huge amount of like the extra wind generation that they've brought on in the past while has just been swallowed up by data centers you know so you actually end up like very little better in terms of like the amount of renewable energy that you're having you know and because of that like and you know like even if you're doing massive investment into the electricity system there's only so much capacity you can add over time even if you were doing it in a, in a good like um publicly owned democratically managed way so like there is there's always going to be a need for energy conservation because just physically the amount of um extra you know, construction of, of windmills and all that that you can do in a period of time. So you need to like keep it for stuff that actually matters rather than wasting it basically on like 
data centers, you know. Okay, so um, we're running low on time and I want to, for those that have showed up in person, theoretical person, in virtual online person, I want to open it up to the floor in a second as well but um, to take questions. But I do have two more questions that I want to, to talk about. So one of them is sort of, uh, um, one of the questions is is that point that you just, you just rhetorically, you're saying it, Diana, is that publicly owned and democratically controlled. Um, often when this phrase uh, hits the mass media, we don't, you don't hear that second part a lot um, or it's seen as, as fluff an extra that can be, dropped uh, for the for the sound bite but why is that second part that democratically controlled why is that important and how does that compare to um esb in the 30s and the 40s what what do you what do you mean by democratically controlled well i, I think part of it is the question of um like the mandate i think that is a part of it like because you compare it to the esb that is currently there it's run on a for-profit basis it's run by like right-wing government appointed bureaucrats effectively who who like fancy themselves as captains of industry it just happens to be like a semi-state industry but like their their whole mentality is a for-profit mentality so for example within within esb there's huge amounts of outsourcing so you have this state-owned company but like they're outsourcing and outsourcing and outsourcing there was an important industrial dispute maybe a year ago in relation uh, to that and um, so it's a rejection of that um and saying okay the mandate should be delivery of affordable electricity and rapid uh, transition to 100% renewable. Um, but also, okay, on what basis is this thing actually run? And we're saying the workers who are actually involved in doing the work, which are the experts and so on, they should be brought to the heart of it. In other words, it should actually be democratically run, which means an input from those workers. It means an input from uh, the central government. And it means an input from like the experts in terms of climate uh, change and the need for a rapid transition. Yeah, and I think like it's important to point out to people as well that like the only types of nationalization that people have been familiar with over the last while are like really bad things like nationalizing Anglo-Irish Bank and making them making us bail out the banks, you know. Um, so this is like a, a non-profit in the public good um, kind of nationalization. So like, I think you would have like, you know, democratic mechanisms for like communities um, to have a say in the running of the system and the workers and um, running it. And then you would also have to have like a, you know, national democratic mechanisms and stuff as well. So like just a kind of complete democratization of um, the DESB, um, which I think like, even at its best, like um, semi-state companies in the past have, you know, always been kind of very top down and like, you know, they're still run by kind of top executives and stuff rather than, you know, under workers control as such. And like that's gotten much worse, like over the decades, they've just become like kind of carbon copies of private companies. Um, and even in terms of how you know, it's legislated for the EU level, they say, oh, yeah, you can go ahead and nationalize your energy companies, but they still have to be run in exactly the same way as a private company, So you know, um, with a for-profit mandate. So it almost makes it pointless, you know, um, in terms of how the, the EU says um, that it, it should be done, you know. So we, we're really talking about a very different type of democratic public ownership to the current kind of model of, of semi-state companies, you know. And on the on that point about the EU, I believe when this has been raised in different coalitions that we're involved in, that involve include Sinn Fein and others, that one of the objections, one of the justifications that 
uh, uh, reps from Sinn Féin have said as to why they won't support nationalising the energy company is that point that like, well, the EU don't allow it, the EU don't want it. Um, would this, would this people's power approach, this public ownership of energy, uh, um, would that mean a showdown with the EU? And what, what would, how would you, how would you cope with that? Well, I think, I think one important thing to say is the Irish government has always been selective themselves about which parts of the EU law they follow. I mean, we're currently being fined hundreds of millions of euros for fa- failure to implement various environmental uh, directives. Um, so when the Irish government feels it in the interest of the capitalist class in Ireland to like stand up to the EU, that's the road they do. Obviously, you had the Apple tax case where in the end they managed to win, but like it was clear that in reality they were engaged in like state aid to uh, Apple. So where it serves the interests of the capitalist class in Ireland or the multinational capitalist class that they try to serve, they like put on the quote unquote green jersey and they fight the EU and whatever. Um, so we, we think that like a left government in Ireland, which is operating on the base of eco-socialist policies, has no choice if they want to tackle the climate crisis, want to tackle the cost of living crisis, want to tackle the energy supply crisis. It has to engage in this nationalization of the energy sector. Um, the consequence of that will be a clash with the EU. In my opinion, that's that's very likely. They'll say, oh, but you you didn't compensate these companies. You didn't buy them. They they say, oh, you, you can you can nationalize the sector, but you have to do it on like a as if you're a private operator. So you have to pay full price for them and then you have to run them on a for-profit basis. Obviously we're not in favor of doing that. They've made enough profit from the resources and the workers in this country. Um, we're saying they're going to be uh, nationalized. Um, and actually even the government within current legislation has the capacity uh, to do that. But but then the point is, okay, it would open up a, like a lengthy process of the EU uh, saying, we're going to take you to court, infringement proceedings, blah, blah, blah. But you know, the context of a left government in Ireland will be one of struggle, of opportunities for left governments, for socialist policies in other countries. And therefore, we would launch an appeal. And it won't just be on this nationalization question, it'll be on lots of things to say we need a very different Europe. We need a socialist Europe, one that interests, it acts in the interests of ordinary people, not in the interests of the corporations, one that's genuinely democratic, where you don't have the European Commission, which has all the power, but instead, you know, it's a very, very different vision of, of Europe. So, yes, uh, it's not something that, like, just because it's against the way the EU is structured doesn't mean you can't do it. You can do it. Yes, it opens up a clash with the European Commission, but we think that's that's inevitable if you're actually going to implement policies that are in the interests of ordinary people. Yeah, I think if you want to change the world, um, there will be those in power will not like it. Um, and you have a choice then. You can either choose to change the world and to, to, to fight those in power, uh, um, or you can concede and say, oh, well, if we tried this, the, the rich and powerful may object. Um, and I think that's the that's the choice. And that's the choice facing the left. That's the choice potentially facing the next government as to whether they take the side of working class people and fight for them or uh, 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 go down the road that we've seen again and again of abating and uh, giving in to the pressures from the rich and powerful. Um, Okay, is there any final comments that people want to throw in? Or if not, I'll wrap up there. Um, Before we, I'll open it up to the floor now in a second for those in person. But... um, Okay, so I think we leave it there uh, for now. And for those in person, we'll uh, take some questions. Uh, for those listening later on on uh, on the podcast, thanks to all of those who've made this podcast possible. This is our 100th episode. Um, 
it's a pleasure and a pain to produce. Uh, um, but uh, uh, the pleasure is there because people have spread the word about it. And like they, what keeps us going is that positive feedback is seeing people spreading the word, looking and seeing that we're having an impact, that people are sharing it, they're liking it, they're talking about us, they're sending us feedback on it. Uh, um, that is the the bits that keep you going. So thanks to everybody over the past 100 episodes that have participated, have spread the word, have shared it in their WhatsApp groups, in their branches, in their campaigns, in their uh, uh, union groups and in all of that. Uh, um, and please keep that going uh, and keep spreading this word for the, for the next 100 episodes. Um, the Just the, the final heads up is that the new issue, a new issue of Rupture is in production. Issue 9 of Rupture should be out hopefully uh, for December 10th. Uh, with a launch party in Connolly Books on that evening. Keep an eye out uh, um, for that. Uh, it, there will be a, a poten- uh, an ability for people to come and attend in person to get their hands on the, the issue straight away and to, to have a drink and have a chat and to, to celebrate at the, the end of the year. Uh, issue 9 of Rupture is being done as a centenary issue uh, to mark 100 years since partition, 100 years since the, the creation of the, 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 the Irish Free State and review that carnival of reaction. Uh, um, what could have been uh, the alternative that could have been of a workers' republic, but also discuss the impact that partition, the impact that the creation of two sectarian states, uh, poverty-ridden states, north and south, has had 100 years on. Um, so keep an eye out for that in the, the weeks and months ahead. 